0: Welcome to Two Way Street. I'm Bill Mygid. My guest today is author and historian Jim Jordan. We're going to be talking about his new book, The Slave Trader's Letter Book, which is a nonfiction account of a provocative but little known series of events that took place on the Georgia coast in the years preceding the Civil War. It's the story of Savannah businessman Charles Lamar who set out to make his fortune by importing and selling Africans long after the practice had been banned in the United States. And despite his ineptness in business, Lamar did become the first slave trader to successfully land a shipload of captive Africans on American shores in more than 40 years when his ship, the Wanderer, came ashore near the Little Cumberland Island Lighthouse off Jekyll Island in November of 1858. Jim Jordan is perfectly positioned to have written the Slave Traders letterbook. He lives off an island on the coast of South Carolina and is a longtime researcher of the colonial antebellum and Civil War South. Thanks for joining me for the show today, Jim. Thanks for having me, Bill. So let me start by uh, uh, quoting something you say uh, in early in the book. You say that Charles Augustus Lafayette Lamar in, 19, in 1858 committed, quote, one of the most brazen crimes of the century. So with that as a starting point, tell us a little more about who Charles Lamar was.
1: Charles Lamar was the son of Gassaway Bug Lamar, a very prominent Savannah businessman and really a more significant character in Georgia history than Charles was. Uh, Charles uh, was born into wealth. He uh, went to Chatham Academy. He had everything, I guess, uh, a young man in that, those years could have. His early life was marked by a significant tragedy when Gasway took his family, which consisted of his wife three daughters, three sons, a niece and a sister, on a trip on one of his ships, the SS Pulaski, up to uh, Baltimore. They left Savannah, this is in June of 1838, and stayed one night in Charleston so they could advertise the voyage as one night at sea. They left Charleston uh, the next morning, and that night one of the engineers Poured cold water into one of the steaming hot boilers that had burned off all its water. It exploded and uh, tore a hole in the ship and uh, blew the pilot house right above uh, sky high, killing the captain. Uh, the ship eventually sank, and uh, Charles was able to survive, as was Gazaway and Gazaway's sister. However, Gazaway lost his wife three daughters, two sons, and a niece in the tragedy.
0: Yeah, and you paint a very chilling picture of uh, that night uh, after the ship, uh, as the ship was sinking, of the family members uh, being uh, thrown into the water and struggling to find each other, um, only to realize later that they did lose um, members of the family. Um, But Charles, uh, his father was very wealthy. He grew up a child of privilege, as you point out, But he never could quite establish himself in any business successfully. He either had terrible luck, Jim, or uh, he was just always a lousy businessman with no skills at doing it right.
1: It's, It's hard for me to figure out, and I look for a turning point in his life. Uh, because early on, his father left uh, Savannah in 1846 when Charles was just 21 or 22, and he left Charles in charge of the Savannah operations, uh, which included a a wharf and docking operations and a warehouse. And apparently he did okay in those early years. He seemed to have done okay, and I just looked for a turning point in his life, and uh, it seemed like he got involved with the filibuster movement uh, in the early 1850s. Yeah,
0: you need to explain to uh, our listeners what the filibuster movement was, because it's it's an interesting chapter in American history that I knew very little about until I read it in your book.
1: Well, it's really been forgotten by history. A few historians know about it, but uh, it was front page news in the 1850s. In, in the early 1850s, there were 15 free states and 15 slave states, but the United States had a vast amount of territory to the west, and of course, the free states were doing their best to bring all of those territories as states into the Union as free states, and they were succeeding. And uh, the slave states realized that they were going to lose their power in Congress unless they were able to bring more slave states into the Union. And, you know, in my opinion, that's what Texas was all about. But uh, Now, this wasn't the government, but these were some individuals who wanted to take matters into their own hands. They figured that if they could invade Cuba, which was a Spanish territory, and uh, have the residents of cuba rise up overthrow spanish rule make it a u.s territory and then bring cuba as make it a u.s territory and then bring it into the united states as one or more
0: uh states they would add more they would add another slave territory to the uh into their column
1: yes now of course uh these individuals uh Uh, were basically Americans uh, who wanted to bring increase of slave power, but they were also Cuban expatriates living in the United States who just wanted to overthrow the Spanish and, if necessary, bring them into the States. So it was not government-backed, but these individuals hired a mercenary army and made several attempts to uh, invade Cuba. They did. And interestingly enough, and for all those folks out there that remember the Bay of Pigs, they, they landed on the shores of Cuba in 1850 and 1851, but the residents showed no interest in in joining them and
0: overthrowing some Yeah, like a lot of other episodes in uh, uh, Charles Lamar's life, uh, this one did not end the way he would have wanted it to. Um, so let's, if we can, m- move forward a little bit— um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to go back and forth just a little bit because there are so many interesting aspects of the book that I want to talk with you about. The title of your book is The Slave Trader's Letter Book, and you're referring to a series of letters that Charles Lamar himself wrote over a period of about six years, 1855 to 1861, is that right? Yes. How did you first come to learn about those letters, that they may exist?
1: Well, uh, I started out writing an historical novel about uh, Savannah in Georgia called Savannah Gray. And when I was doing my research, I came across uh, Lamar and uh, the Wanderer. And there was an article in an 1886 political journal quoting, supposedly quoting letters, extracts from Charles's letter book. And uh, they were Highly interesting, but as I did more research, I found that an historian in the 1960s doubted the authenticity of these letters, that he thought they were faked uh, in 1886 to embarrass Charles's cousin, uh, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar, who was being considered for an appointment to President Grover Cleveland's cabinet.
0: These articles appeared in me uh, – or this article, rather, appeared in, I think, the North American Review. Yes. So there was reason to think maybe there was political motive behind it.
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely. But uh, at any rate, I had – when I finished Savannah Gray, I decided, realized that I had done so much research on The Wanderer and Lamar that I wrote an article about them that was published in the Georgia Historical Quarterly. Then I moved on. It was time to move on, and I started to write the sequel to *Savannah Gray*. And about a year or two into that, the uh, head archivist at the Georgia Historical Society, who knew me well, as I did most of my research there, called me and said that she had just received uh, a phone call from a woman in New Jersey who had three steamer trunks full of Gasaway Lamar papers in her attic.
0: <laughs> Up in, I think it's in Upper Montclair, New yes, Jersey. This yes. is 1969. <laughs>
1: Yes. so uh, And she wanted to know if the Georgia Historical Society was interested in acquiring them. And the head archivist asked me if I wanted to go up and at least authenticate the papers, knowing that the uh, Georgia Historical Society didn't usually buy collections. They were donated. And of course, I was so excited, uh, I was on a plane in a week. And I went up there, and the woman welcomed me. And I went through those papers, and it was a treasure trove of of Savannah and Georgia and Southern history. Uh, they had Gasway Lamar's letter books. They had uh, his accounting records. There were assorted documents like he was uh, freed on bail by uh, the president, uh, President Johnson. There were his passports allowing him to travel around Georgia during Reconstruction. There were uh, there was his signed oath of allegiance to the Union after Sherman's army marched in, so an incredible collection. But as I was going through the collection, I came across a letter book that was indeed the slave trader's letter book. It well, was what charming.
0: was that? Fa- what was that like for you that moment?
1: I I could hardly hold the book when I realized <laughs> I had it in my hands, and I was the first person in perhaps 125 years since that article to see it. So uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, the woman who allowed me graciously to come into her home for three days and go through the papers uh, came bounding upstairs. Uh, so I must have said something out loud uh, to attract her attention. So it was, it was, of course, a thrilling, thrilling moment for me.
0: Yeah. And it, 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 so when you describe it as a letter book, what exactly does that mean? Is this a just a bound volume of his letters is that a typical uh, uh, description of what those wh- how people kept their letters together what what is a letter book
1: a letter book in those days when uh people want to keep a copy of the letters they had written uh they bought uh, they had a bound volume of blank pages and then they wrote their letter on a separate piece of paper Uh, With a special ink, they placed it on a blotter, they put it underneath a blank page, and they put a blotter over on top of the blank page, and then they screwed it down. It was a, uh, screwed it down, and so the uh, inks squeezed uh, up into the paper above. Ah, okay. And that's how they kept uh, copies of their letters.
0: So what is remarkable about this is that it gave you what you needed to try to construct how Charles Lamar, having failed in one business after the other, eventually found his way into the slave trading business, where he also failed time and time again. But the adventure that unfolds, as you tell it in the book, and as you learned it from the letters, is pretty extraordinary, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Now, Charles Gasaway was uh, very fastidious, and he recorded almost every letter he wrote. Charles was not as fastidious. Uh, he was his mind was diffusive. Okay, but what? And,
0: what oh, so go ahead, finish that. I'm sorry. And
1: so there were there are collections of Charles's letters in other societies, but it was the letter book, of course, that brought it all together.
0: So let's let's point out again. I mentioned it in the in, introduction, but what these letters and other research you did uh, helped you reconstruct is something of great significance. In 1858, Charles Lamar, and we'll talk about this in more detail in a moment, Charles Lamar was able to land a ship with well over 400 captured Africans right off the coast of... uh, Georgia, right at Jekyll Island, essentially. And it was the first time since the slave trade was outlawed. Is that right? In the United States in 1818. And that in itself is a riveting thing to contemplate.
1: Well, yes. Uh, and it's it's somewhat unbelievable. But the slave trade was banned at the federal level in 1808. But mm-hmm. there are some instances where slave traders landed uh, slaves uh, in Louisiana, really unexplored uh, territory, for a few years after the federal ban. But really since 1820, there is no recorded successful landing of Africans on American shores until Lamar did it uh, in 1858, so practically 40 years.
0: So he really did it, you tell us for two reasons. He got engaged in the slave trade for two reasons. One, he needed money, and at that time, trading in slaves was, he figured, a business where he could get rich pretty quickly. That's one reason, correct? Yes, absolutely. But the other reason is, you say, that all of this unfolded since it was 1850s and onward, this unfolded in the shadow of the coming secession, and and. In some ways, he was trying to make a point about his belief that the South had a complete right, despite northern uh, antagonism, to continue the slave trade and to continue having slaves uh, work in uh, southern fields.
1: Yes, he did. uh, He did believe that. And so did uh, some other men in the South. Sure. uh, And some campaigned on it. The governor of South Carolina in 1856 said the South has to have the ability to import Africans to support its economy. Uh, And there were other individuals as well. But by and large, it was rejected. It was certainly rejected in the North. And by and large, it was rejected in the South.
0: Well, when you say it was rejected, let's be sure we're on the same page here, uh, because certainly Southerners were continuing to use slaves on their plantations. We're talking now about the importation of new Africans, captured Africans, is that right?
1: Absolutely, and that's a good point. Uh, People frequently confuse the laws of the slave trade uh, to the laws of slavery. Slavery was legal in the South. It was actually up to the states to decide whether they wanted to uh, legalize slavery or not. But the slave trade was different. So while the slave trade was banned, uh, as a matter of fact, all the individual states had banned slavery before the 1808 federal ban, uh, including the southern states, and only South Carolina rescinded that ban. Uh, But all the southern states did keep slavery, legally at least.
0: Okay, right. Again, what they banned was the importation, not Uh, the uh, use of slaves uh, by white property owners. Correct. Okay, so Lamar gets involved and he's looking, he has to find a ship. I mean, he's had, we know your book describes several opportunities Lamar tries to take advantage of to uh, go to Africa, to uh, transport um, captured Africans back to the United States. But... The ship that becomes the real uh, key to everything he did and is important to your book is called The Wanderer. And can I read something from your book to you? Absolutely. You talk about The Wanderer, if I can find it here, that um, you, you, he, some, a New York reporter sees The Wanderer, which is basically a luxury yacht, I think. Yes. And it's been in New York Harbor at some point or other and a, and a reporter from New York says she is 243 tons burden, 95 feet length of keel, 10 and a half feet depth of hold and 26 and a half feet beam and he goes on, he says, her run is so sharp and clean that one would be at a loss to tell where the water would touch it after it passes her midship lines. He goes on and describes the decks as being scrup- scrupulously white. This apparently was a beautiful ship, and you do have a picture of it.
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely. They, they Wherever the ship went, reporters raved about it in their papers. In Boston, in Newport, in New York. As a matter of fact, it was even... Banned from a couple of yacht races because it was so much faster than all the other uh, uh, yachts. So it was a, uh, uh, an architectural uh, masterpiece as far as yacht building is concerned.
0: So what is Charles? So Charles By is the Wanderer.
1: Yes. Charles actually uh, headed the syndicate mm-hmm. that bought the uh, yeah. uh, Wanderer. There were actually uh, eight people involved in the syndicate, But Charles was clearly the uh, the leader of the syndicate.
0: And that begins the uh, uh, the journey that will eventually land him right off of Tybee Island with his uh, his manifest of captured Africans. I want to do this if we uh, can, Jim. I want to take a quick break. Uh, and come back and continue our conversation. I'm talking with uh, Jim Jordan about his new book, The Slave Trader's Letter Book. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, my guest is Jim Jordan. He's a South Carolina historian and author who's published two novels about the antebellum and Civil War South. Today, though, we're talking about his new nonfiction book, The Slave Trader's Letter Book. It's the story of Savannah businessman Charles Lamar, who, 40 years after the importation of slaves to the United States was outlawed, hoped to get rich quick when he successfully landed a shipload of nearly 500 captured Africans near Jekyll Island Georgia Jim as um, Charles is attempting to uh, put together his uh, a voyage on the wanderer there's another incident with a slave ship called the echo tell us about the echo
1: the echo was another slave ship uh, that uh, went to the coast of Africa picked up about 450 Africans and uh, transported them across the Atlantic and was captured by an American uh, naval cruiser. Uh, At that time, there were only about approximately 300 survivors left. 130 had already died. The uh, cruiser brought the uh, Echo into Charleston Harbor, and the authorities put the uh, surviving Africans into Fort Sumter. Uh, there was a decision as to what would happen with those 320 survivors, and of course, in time, uh, their numbers diminished as they continued to die from uh, sicknesses that they acquired on the voyage. But the uh, because it the ship was captured by a federal cruiser, it was up to the federals, uh, the federal authorities, to decide what to do. Uh, with those uh, Africans, and they made the decision to send the Africans to Liberia.
0: Which had been established as a free colony for this very purpose.
1: Yes, it was established uh, to send free persons of color from the states who didn't want to stay in America anymore uh, uh, back to Africa.
0: So, you know, um, just to uh, um, interrupt for a moment, this is um, a chilling a, a idea to me, because we see it again when the wanderer finally lands its uh, people and and they are dispersed and, and go off in many directions. The notion that human beings are suddenly, these these captured Africans find themselves in in America. There's no place to put them. They're sent to Fort Sumter. They don't speak the language. It's really kind of shocking to think about how that would unfold.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, what's more shocking is that by the time they were taken back to Liberia, there were only 200 survivors. Yeah. Yeah. One
0: one of the things that I was uh, interested in is you quote from an article in the Charleston Mercury, um, and you quote it because you say, that, of course, many Southerners wanted the uh, people from the Echo to remain in America. And I'm not going to read the whole paragraph, but I think it makes a point that's worth our discussing. There are many who would like them upon any terms that the most solicitous guardian could require, who would undertake to give them all the clothes, all the food, the education, the liberty, the skills of the physician, the teachings of religion. And then it goes on and, and says, though, that in the name of humanity, it's required that they shall be sent to the dreary wild where there can be no hope of any of those things, where they could never have the skills of the physician, the teaching of the pastor, or the regulation of a higher nature. That tells us everything we need to know about the the extraordinary paternalism of, uh, of many people toward uh, uh, slaves, and the fact that that they somehow, the Southerners felt they were taking better care of them than if they lived on their own.
1: Uh, absolutely. That is how m- most Southerners felt. Now, I think most Southerners felt that uh, deep in their hearts, and I think other Southerners might have rationalized that in, in rationalizing slavery. But there's no question that amongst Many Southerners, there was this feeling of paternalism that they were actually doing the uh, Africans a favor by ripping them from their homeland and uh, bringing them to America.
0: Eventually, um, you you tell us throughout, or you 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 tell us the story of how uh, Charles Lamar finds a crew for a ship, finds a captain, and they do set sail uh, to bring back uh, enslaved Africans. How does that part of the story go?
1: Well, and uh, uh, Charlie had a couple of partners uh, for his other unsuccessful slaving ventures. And as a matter of fact, they're also partners in his legal interstate uh, slave trade. So it was legal to sell Georgian slaves in Texas, the interstate trade. Uh, They were partners in that. Charlie was involved in that as well. And of course, he failed in that as well. But uh, uh, Charlie was broke, and near the end of his rope, uh, he was in uh, New Orleans uh, trying to collect a debt uh, when uh, the ship Wanderer, the yacht Wanderer, came sailing in from a winter's cruise. This is in March of 1858, and uh, that is the first time I can link uh, Charles Lamar and the Wanderer together. And uh, things happened very quickly from there. The, uh, Charles left New Orleans shortly after that. The Wanderer left for New York uh, a month later. And within a few weeks, uh, William Corey, uh, one of Charles's partner, who would be the captain of the Wanderer, purchased the ship. Uh, they brought it up to Port Jefferson, New York, where they had uh, water tanks capable of holding up to 15,000 gallons of water. Uh, outfitted uh, plus other outfits Uh, all of a sudden uh, foreign crewmen uh, which appeared to local authorities to look like the typical slave crew showed up and boarded the ship the ship was seized by authorities because of all the suspicious activity but uh, William Curry who was a lobbyist in Washington by the way and who Charlie uh, recruited because he was a sweet smooth talker was able to talk his way out of uh, uh, being held, being seized in New York. So they let the ship go, came down, uh, sailed down to Charleston. It was uh, The outfit was completed. When I say the outfit, just imagine what it would be like to carry and feed 500 humans for a period of six weeks and think of what you'd need to be able to do that. So these slave ships had to be outfitted. Had to carry bricks to build a big stove. Had to carry lumber to build a. Uh, excuse me. Yes, lumber to build a slave deck. Had to carry barrels and barrels of rice and farina and beans. Uh, chloride of lime as a disinfectant, medicines. All of this had to be stowed on a ship and had to get by customs authorities. Uh, but uh, the wanderer and. Uh, William Corey was able to do it and they departed uh, for Africa in early July
0: 1858. But not before Lamar is fighting. is Howell Cobb, what was Howell Cobb's uh, title at that time?
1: He was the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States.
0: Right. And he was, he, were, were he and, and, and Lamar related in some way, do I remember?
1: Yes. Uh, Howell Cobb was Charles's cousin through marriage. I think he c- cousin once removed. He married Gazaway's cousin, Mary Lamar.
0: So the point being that it is Howell Cobb who is going to have to eventually give uh, permission for uh, this ship to go to foreign ports, and he doesn't want to do it. And they get into an argument, not unusual because... Charles Lamar, as you point out, fought with just about everybody. And and as this argument is ongoing, Cobb at one point, you quote him as saying, I intend to violate this law, this uh, slave trade law, if that shall be the only way by which the South can come to right upon this question, and I will reopen the trade in slaves to foreign countries, let your cruisers catch me if they can. Defiant <laughs> in every way.
1: Absolutely. Let me just make clear, Bill, that when this discussion was going on, Charles was uh, attempting to send a different ship, oh, to okay. Richard Cobden, from Charleston. Okay. And w- uh, what got Howell Cobb involved is that Charles uh, applied for clearance, or his agents did, applied for clearance to go to Africa to bring back African apprentices and land them in a port in the United States.
0: I I thank you for the correction. Uh, The African apprentices were an attempt to to go around the notion of slaves. They were essentially indentured servants, uh, but treated much as if they were slaves.
1: Yes, absolutely. But uh, Charles had heard that uh, the English and the French, after they had uh, banned slavery in their Uh, colonies in the West Indies turned to something called African apprentices. So he decided he would as well and of course that's when he applied for the port clearance and uh, it went all the way up from the port collector in Charleston to Howell College. Well,
0: different ship but the same spirit of defiance by Charles Lamar. So thank you for the correction. You know, you mentioned uh, outfitting a ship and in this case the Wanderer to take on board as many as 500 uh, individuals, and you have a very graphic description of what that would be like, of what it probably was like once um, the people who were captured were taken on board the ship. You tell us that, well, why don't you tell us, what, what, do, what do you think the conditions were, Your res- what does the research show you the conditions were upon which they were kept once they were boarded on a ship like the Wanderer?
1: Well, it's uh, really too horrible to even find uh, words to describe uh, what it was like. Uh, I just can't imagine what the, uh, it was really like for these poor uh, African captives. But uh, what most slave ships did and what the wanderer did was they stored these slaves in the hold. So they had to take down all the bulkheads. So basically the hold was an open area, one big open area. Then, with that lumber that they had to smuggle out, they uh, built a slave deck, and it was really a ship, excuse me, a shelf that went around the uh, interior of the hold of the ship. Uh, So if the hold had a depth of 10 feet, about 5 feet up, they'd build a shelf around the hold of the ship where they could store more Africans. The... Number of Africans, I had to do a calculation of how in the world they could fit 487 Africans in the ship, and uh, the only way I figured they could do it was they would, uh, the the captives had to lay on their sides and be fit spoon style uh, so that to take up as little room as possible. So you can imagine they may have been manacled, they may not have been, Uh, I don't know. Uh, There's no report of manacles on the uh, Wanderer, and not every slave ship in the illegal era used manacles. Well,
0: you point out that one of the reasons uh, they may not have been used is that they would have been clear evidence to any inspector that this was, in fact, a slave ship.
1: Yes, yes. So they were basically squeezed together in the hold, naked, naked. Uh, women and children uh, would have been separated from the men. If there was no separate compartment in the hold, they would have been put on deck and in inclement weather uh, have a, uh, a tarp uh, pulled over them. But it, as we later learn, when the press— uh, Hears about the wanderer and the number that it supposedly took in. The one thing that the northern and southern newspapers agreed on is that 400 Africans being landed couldn't possibly be true, that the ship couldn't possibly have uh, accommodated that number of people.
0: So that was a conflated number all along?
1: Uh, No, it wasn't. It was a real number. They were just squeezed together so inhumanely. Oh,
0: you're saying they were, sh- that they, they could not imagine how right. you could. Oh, go ahead. I'm yes. sorry. Okay.
1: Uh, but at any rate, they were squeezed together in the hold. Uh, and th- 487 uh, humans could not have fit upon the, uh, the top deck all at one time. So they had to bring them in in groups, bring them up in groups. They would bring them up, they would feed them. A typical uh, uh, diet for the African was rice or farina and beans, possibly uh, occasionally some dried beef. Uh, Then the doctor would inspect them, uh, usually have them wash out their mouths with vinegar, then perhaps make them dance for exercise, uh, hose them down with seawater, and send them then back into the hold and bring the next group up. Uh, And so you can imagine doing that for Close to 500 individuals.
0: And how long was the voyage?
1: The voyage was six weeks, and by the time, by the end of the voyage, there were about 400 uh, living uh, souls that had survived. So that's about a 20 percent. 15 to 20% death rate for the Middle Passage, which was about normal during the illegal era. I just want to make one thing clear, Bill, uh, just to the uh, enormity and the horror of the slave trade. The transatlantic slave trade lasted 350 years. For 290 of them, it was perfectly legal. Yeah. The Atlantic nations thought there was no problem in sending ships to the coast of Africa, cramming the holds with humans, transporting them across the sea, and selling them into a life of bondage. 290 years it took for the moral conscience to awaken and realize not only that it was wrong, but it was inhumane beyond all standards. Well,
0: Jim, I don't want to divert from this story too much, but I do think you raise an interesting point. Was it moral conscience that finally led Western nations to outlaw the slave trade in uh, 1808 and beyond?
1: Yes, I believe so. I believe that uh, the the British and uh, the United States uh, came to realize that, that there was enough petitioning by groups that it had to stop. I, I do believe that they finally came to realize.
0: Okay. Let let's um move forward a bit. So sure. the wanderer takes on uh these uh, 487 people uh in who are captives. Let's never forget they were captives. And it does land it's a, the, I think the the ship landed off the coast of Georgia November 28th 1858. Yes. And you say it was right near the Little Tybee Island Lighthouse a little cumberland little island little cumberland island lighthouse
1: cumberland island lighthouse yes they needed a pilot to bring them uh, across saint andrew's sound to the far side of Tybee island they uh, obviously the sea uh, the, the sound the water is much calmer to land the africans and uh, it was the ship would be hidden from uh, any passing ships going on the atlantic route uh, to from just going along the uh, Uh, from northern states to southern states. Uh, So they wanted the ship to be hidden from view, from passing ships.
0: Well, but you also report to us that um, knowing where the ship was going to land, Charles uh, has a notice published, I think in the Savannah Morning News, warning that people should stay away from that part of Jekyll Island.
1: Yes, yes. He had the Dobinian brothers uh, publish that uh, ad, of uh, course, he knew that the ship was due in. Uh, it's amazing that uh, his timing was so close uh, that it, it, it appeared in the paper just a week before. The uh, wanderer did arrive.
0: The Dominions were a wealthy family uh, who were uh, prominent on. Do they own Jekyll Island? Yes, yeah. they
1: own Jekyll Island.
0: Yeah, and so they were involved in this to the extent that they were well aware of what was happening.
1: Yes, and uh, apparently they got paid. They probably got paid for the uh, allowing the ship to land there.
0: So, if if we can, we be, before we have to take another break, the the ship lands. And Charles' dreams of getting rich quick rapidly deteriorate, don't they?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Charlie did uh, overestimate his abilities uh, many times, and he certainly did in uh, the amount of money and the rapidity in which he could sell these uh, Africans. Uh, He—the syndicate apparently divided up the slaves— Uh, Amongst each other and there were shares and Charlie apparently had a big share. So his share was in a group that uh, sailed from Jekyll Island up the coast up to the Savannah River uh, and past Savannah uh, initially to a plantation about 16 miles above Savannah where they stayed for about a week. And then most of them were shipped further up the coast to a woodyard in just south of Hamburg, South Carolina, which is across the river from Augusta. And Charles tried to sell his slaves. Uh, he thought he could get $650 for each slave as uh, fast as landed. And as it turned out, he couldn't. Uh, not only uh, was he getting a much lower price – but he was being given notes uh, instead of cash.
0: You well, And then you tell us that a, they disperse um, in many ways. You, uh, the Augusta newspaper of the day, you have a quote from them, it, it, and this is a quote, this isn't me, about 270 of the wild Africans are, are on a plantation in South Carolina. Others were spotted in various places, a train to Macon in Atlanta on their way to Montgomery. This again takes us back to this notion that you've brought these displaced people to America, and their disposition—if they're not rushed off to a plantation to work as slaves—is completely um, unknown. We, who knows what's going to happen to them?
1: Yes, absolutely. Now, the the some of the Africans, interestingly enough were on their own they weren't under the care Damn. of a white person those are the two that were found uh, in macon and uh, others that were going to montgomery were under the care of a white person but it's some were just able to escape apparently
0: Let, let's do this let's get another uh, a break in if we uh, can, Jim, and then we're going to come back and talk more uh, about your book uh you're listening to two-way street Welcome back to Two Way Street. I'm Bill Nigat. I'm talking with South Carolina historian and author Jim Jordan about his new book, The Slave Trader's Letter Book. It's the story of Savannah businessman Charles Lamar, who defied the law against importing slaves to the United States when he landed a shipload of almost 500 captured Africans at a beach near Jekyll Island in late 1858 jim uh, one of the beauties of your book is that you've published all of the letters you found uh in that uh trunk in montclair new jersey i know you have a favorite i'll tell you my absolute favorite it's letter number 39 which he writes to tom i'm not quite sure who tom is tom
1: is tom lamar his cousin uh. in hamburg uh, south carolina who uh, Charles entrusted the sales of the Africans after Charles had to leave that area to go and s- have a court date.
0: Well, one of the reasons I love this letter is it shows us how desperate he is and how much money met. He says, Dear Tom, don't sell any of the Negroes for." anything but money meaning don't take notes I would not give a damn for all the notes that have been sent me I want the money money alone will pay my obligations keep the Negroes if they can't be sold for cash and I will send them West and he goes on but boy that tells us everything we need to know about his motivation and his desperation
1: yes oh he was desperate but uh, he had a, a backbone made of steel uh, unfortunately, and uh, he stood up to uh, uh, all adversity and uh, just plowed ahead. Unfortunately, as I say,
0: you have a letter, uh, and in fact, it was part of the exchange we talked about earlier when he was trying to get his uh, uh, cousin by marriage, Howell Cobb, to give him permission to take a ship out, um, and and it's a letter that he wrote to Cobb that I know you said you like.
1: Yes, uh, this is, again, uh, uh, one of his earlier slave ships. As a matter of fact, his first one, he he bought a ship called the E.A. Rollins and uh, brought it, uh, had it sailed into Savannah and had it outfitted uh, for the slave trade. And the port collector there uh, seized it as a slaver. And uh, Charles got upset and he wrote to Hal Cobb, who was his cousin by marriage, and complained about it. And uh, this letter highlights a couple of things. Number one, Charles's uh, defiance, and then a very interesting quote uh, where he—well, I'll get to it in a second. Let sure. me read the first part sure. to Hal Cobb, dear sir. I am loath to trouble you again, but your damned sap head of a collector refuses to do anything and compels me to do so. He detained my vessel eight days after she was ready for sea and after she had applied for her clearance papers. Mr. Boston, that's a port collector, said he she was not seized but merely detained. Said the department would respond to any demand I might make for damages. Uh, so here's Charles uh, complaining that his ship was seized and that he was charged for the time that... Uh, uh, the ship was in dock, mm-hmm. so he's complaining about that. Uh, but listen to this: here he he's uh, writing to his the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, claiming that his ship is not a slave ship. Yet he plays on words and taunts Howell Cobb. Let me read: I did not, in my other communications, disclaim any intention of embarking in the slave trade. Nor did I say anything to warrant you supposing I would not engage in it. I simply declared there was nothing aboard except what was on the manifest and that I thought there was nothing suspicious on it. I will now say, as the vessel is a thousand miles from here, that she was as unfit for a voyage to import Negroes as any vessel in port. She was not fitted up in any way and there was nothing on board to warrant the suspicions. What she may hereafter do is another matter which don't concern the present issue.
0: He he absolutely. I'm really glad you read that because it it really shows us what a combative individual he was and how willing he was to uh, defy convention and say what he was going to do.
1: Yes. and But he was taunting him. He's saying, sure. look, uh, uh, I don't think it was a slaver. You had no right to seize it. But, you know, if she turns out to be a slaver, uh, that doesn't concern me. So uh, there's one other letter that I, if I have time, it'll only take uh, sure. a few seconds, but it's also, it's not about the slave trade, but it has to do with, uh, at least as, as a northerner, the curious relationship between uh, master and slave and, and the bonds of friendship that formed, the bonds of, uh, I should say, the bonds of affection that formed. Here's Charlie writing to another uh, Savannah fellow. Uh, His name happens to be Matthew Hopkins. It's letter number 68. Dear sir, I have your note of this morning. My reply to your first note was severe as it should have been under the circumstances. You having struck my boy whom I know to be respectful and polite as avowed in your note without provocation. You now declare distinctly and positively that the boy was impertinent in manner and impeded your passage through the street. I am glad you have placed yourself in such position as to enable me to withdraw language, which, according to your own statement of the facts, was unjust. It is not my desire to put an indignity upon any one, particularly one so young as yourself, and for whom I have always entertained friendly feelings. I cheerfully withdraw the offensive letter. I think you would have done better to have put the boy out of the way and made complaint to me. In other words, somebody hit Charlie's uh, boy, slave, and Charlie was ready to go to the dueling ground over yes,
0: it. Yes, yes. So um, we're almost out of time, uh, Jim. Uh, so if I if I can, let me ask you, uh, what, what did you conclude? I mean, the, the business that Charles Lamar tried to engage in was without question despicable in every way. He was hot-headed, impertinent, always looking for a confrontation. What did you come to the conclusion about him as an individual? How did you decide about him as an individual? Well,
1: it, it, there's no, there's no making excuses for a slave trader. The, the anyone dealing in the slave trade had to know that uh, 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 Africans, innocent Africans, would die as a result. So I, for somebody that I. Uh, research so much. I try to find a good side to uh, Charlie, but there's really no excusing a slave trader, and he he was really a, a, a nasty uh, guy. the The book describes his relationship with his father, who Gasway, who tried to bail him out at every turn, and uh, Charlie was just so nasty back to him. Uh, so I have. Really little positive to say about Charlie.
0: But in telling us your story, you tell um, us—we learn from you in reading it about the history of the slave trade, beginning with the Portuguese. You tell us about how slaves were transported when they were brought to America. You tell us about— the Southern attitude about showing resistance to the North in, in wanting to maintain their slave their slave situations, it's a really um, terrific book. And um, and Jim Jordan, I'm really glad you could join me today to talk about the Slave Traders' Letter Book, which uh, is subtitled Charles Lamar, the Wanderer, and Other Tales of the African Slave Trade. Um, Jim, thank you so much. We're going to post information about the book on the Two Way Street website at gpb.org slash TWS so people can learn more about it. Thank you, Jim, for being with me.
1: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: That's it for us uh, for today's show. Uh, Our producer is Olivia Reingold. I'm Bill Nigat. Thanks so much for being with us for today's edition of Two Way Street. See you again soon.